Now, just coming back to the birthday, bit of bit of uh, feedback on this. Uh, Wallace, you are a birthday Grinch, says Sandra. <laughs> well, you know, um, you. the company I work for still gives a paid leave for a birthday. Self-righteous, you need to have a much better opinion of yourself, says this listener. Uh, another one here. I'm 62 on Sunday. Also happens to be Father's Day, as it was on my birthday. I refuse to work on my birthday. Never have, never will. The boss gets too much out of me. As it is. Uh, very good. Thank you for your feedback this afternoon. Loving it. Uh, to this, financial literacy has been a very big issue recently. Labour wants to make it mandatory in schools, national backs it. A recent piece in the conversation says, hey, let's just hang on. Financial education has its limits, but actually... It belongs in the home. With us is Senior Lecturer in Economics at the University of Canterbury, Steve Agnew. Kia ora, Steve. Hi, Wallace. How are you? Good. How did you learn financial literacy? Um, that's an excellent question. It wasn't in school. <laughs> um, where did I learn? It was probably at university, really, for me, um, when was the first time I really had financial responsibility over my money. And I pretty much learned financial literacy through making my own decisions, uh, my own mistakes, rather. Yes, I can recall, I was thinking about that too, when I was seven or eight, uh, I had my first little um, bank account book. Yeah, the post office. The post office, you put something to get it stamped, and I absolutely loved it. In fact, I really, so much I can recall it. But um, evidence tells us that the current approach means that too many students leave school without the financial schools they need. That's what Chris Hipkins says. Isn't it a no-brainer that a school period on financial education will equip you with the things that you need to know, Steve? Yeah, I'm... I'm Financial education in the school is a good thing. Um, I guess what I would say is that it's not um, a cure-all and that really the the home is the primary source of financial socialisation. When you think about how much time you spend in the home, how much time you spend in school doing a budget. Um, It's a little bit like, if you think of maths, you can learn your times tables in maths at school. And then when you go out into life, you can use your times tables and there's not really much social pressure around it. But you can learn to be financially literate in school in terms of being able to budget. But then when you're out with your mates in a social setting, that budget tends to go out the window. And so it's more your attitude, your personality um, that's going to to, to affect how how good your financial behaviours are. Uh, It's interesting, Steve. Well, it just so happens... Uh, and we prepared this earlier, we have an investment advisor on the show, Jenny Morton. (laughs) Yeah, financial literacy, hi. It's something that, um, you know, I'm very passionate about because we do get so many people coming to see us or not coming to see us because they think they don't fit the mould of people who can invest. Um, They think you've got to have a million dollars before you can start investing. Um, They think that um, all debt is evil. Um, which some of it is, some of it isn't. Um, There's so much that people could learn in school and in the home. And everybody's money journey is very different. And as you said, Steve, everybody's money personality is quite different. But if we can provide some education, if we can provide some, it's quite simply literacy is the right word, some, Mm. some terminology. You know, kids coming out of school don't actually know what a mortgage is. 
And that, to me, scares me because we live yeah. in this country where having a mortgage in your own home is the be-all and end-all. But should they? So, they're kids. Um, but, but we teach them about a lot of other things that they don't have to apply to their lives as children. But as Steve mm. said, then you apply it practically later in life. And so there is nothing wrong with giving them some basics, some life skills that maybe they don't apply when they're 15, 16, 17, but they will apply when they're 26, you know? Sure. Let's just, just some background and some basics and some broader understanding. People, it's people. Did you hear the stats about KiwiSaver yesterday? Yeah. The number of people who, for whatever reason, aren't topping up their KiwiSaver to maximise the government contributions. You know, if we could just get some education around that, then that would make a huge right. difference to people's lives when they're 65. Stay there, Steve. We'll come back to you, but uh, Johnny yep. first. I just think uh, this whole issue around uh, financial literacy education, it seems crazy to me. We don't already have it. I mean, it's, mm. um, you know, this is so obviously such a universally uh, needed uh, skill. And I think, you know, so I, I'm completely supportive of the initiative. I think it's a, a long time a long time coming, really. I, I read your article, Stephen. I guess I was curious. I don't know. I was reflecting on my own experience. I didn't grow up in a very financially literate household, if I can say that. Sorry to my mum if she's listening. But uh, I grew up in a, you know, a single-parent, um, benefit-dependent household, and uh, I was trying to reflect on what sort of financial literacy education we were exposed to. The mm. thing that came to mind actually was um, my mum freezing her credit card. I remember that, literally putting it in the oh, freezer gosh. in an ice cream container because then there was a gap between using it um, and, and waiting for it to melt. Um, but I'm not really sure, I guess I read your article, Steve, I'm not really sure where that leaves us because not everyone has the privilege of having good financial education at home. Um, so what do we do in those scenarios? Yeah, so... Interesting that you said about um, what's happening currently. There, there was a, um, a PISA did, did some work on New Zealand in 2012 and measured the financial literacy rates of 15-year-olds. Um, and they also did a stock take on, on um, how much financial literacy education there was at that point. Mm. And around um, quite a high proportion of schools did have financial literacy um, classes already. They just weren't compulsory. Right. Um, and so I've got the stat here, 30% of New Zealand students were in schools where financial education was not available. So 70% were. But um, where that was available, only 11% of the students were actually doing it. Mm. Um, so I think it was a, a, you know, an hour a week they tended to pop in, maybe in business studies or here and there. Yeah. Um, it wasn't very That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Steve, you yeah. also, I mean, there's a gender aspect of this. Isn't there? You cite a study that says on average boys had their first financial discussion in the home at a younger age than girls. Yeah, yeah. And so this is, I mean, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that if they want to have a, a good financial literacy program in the schools, where possible, they should try and link it to the home. Um, and especially if it's at the primary level where they can be budgeting but then have the kids going home and bringing back the budget from the home and try and get the home involved as much as possible um, to encourage them so the kid can go home with their homework and talk to mum and dad about financial literacy. Um, That's and, the and, interesting and, thing, though, isn't it? That people in New Zealand particularly, I think, are reluctant to talk about money. And they're reluctant to talk to their children about money. And so whether it's they've got a lot of money so they don't want the kids to know because that might make them lazy or something, or whether they haven't got a lot of money and they don't want the children to worry about money, we're really reluctant to talk about money in our homes with our children. And so it doesn't get discussed. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, I'd, I'd actually um, really echo that because you know I think money, um, as I said, I grew up in a reasonably poor household, and you know money characterised our childhood in so many ways. I mean, we we were very aware of its constant stress, but on the other hand, we weren't giving any tools um, to to deal with it and to learn. Right. Um, there's actually there's a, a program here that's just launched in Te Tauhu called Ka Uru Order, which is um, you reminded me when you were talking, Steve. It's a financial education for the whole family, so you go through financial literacy training, and it's in the context of um, becoming homeowners um, and the, the whole family is expected to attend and participate so, so there's some really cool models out there Oh that's fantastic mm. Yeah yeah mm. Kia ora Johnny Hey Steve lovely to have you on the programme Kia ora Great thank you uh, Steve's an economic lecturer uh, who says look you can have financial literacy at school but uh, don't forget about the home uh, although someone says Wallace if I had financial literacy taught to me at school in the 1990s I would have not had a student loan I would own a house and likely not have a lifetime debt via credit cards. Very interesting. 15 away from 5, the panel, loving your company. Thank you for always uh, being uh, with me this afternoon, 3.45 to 5. Don't forget, if you can't listen to it live, the panel is on iHeart, on Apple, Spotify, and on the RNZ app. Johnny O'Donnell and Jenny Morton with me this afternoon. And it's a rite of passage, isn't it? Moving out of the family home, fending for yourself in the world, working out how to put the duvet cover on the duvet yourself. Yeah, I learned that in my 30s, actually. But these days you hear stories adults moving back in with their parents after a few years of flatting. This generation has even been coined the boomerang generation. And with us is Otago University clinical psychologist Cobus Deploy. Cobus, welcome. Get on. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Are we seeing a trend here, Cobus? Yeah, I think we definitely are seeing a trend. Um, I think the cost of living is having quite a significant impact. And this is just another manifestation of that, if you will, that for a, long, a lot of young adults, um, they seem to struggle to to cope financially on their own, especially, and um, then tend to have to move home again um, after maybe studies or an overseas experience. I'd be interested to hear from our <laughs> listeners too whether you've moved back home or has your adult child come back to live with you. Text me 2101. Cobus, stay there. Well, let's jump into our panel. They'll have uh, questions. Johnny. Yeah, I, th- I found this really interesting um, as someone who I moved out of home when I was 15. Um, and 15, and, Johnny? Yeah, I was still in school when I left home. Um, and so I, I, I can't relate to this, but we um, also, I just I find the framing of it, I don't know the right word, Eurocentric, middle class. I mean, I'm seeing uh, a, a definitely a positive trend in, in Māori communities back to papakainga style living where um, families are purposefully choosing um, to live intergenerationally <laughs> again. That's happening a lot. Um, but I don't know, the framing of this always, I find it quite jarring. I, I don't have, um, in my family, we don't have a family home we can return to. Uh, we don't have land in the family. And so the idea of kind of going back to live with your parents is sort of premised on the idea that they're in a position to provide, which is not the case for so many. Fair point, fair point, uh, uh, Johnny. Uh, stay there, Cobus. Uh, Jenny. Yeah, I, I have to agree with what um, Johnny just said then. It's, it's really made me think that, you know, it is very much something a middle-class family mm. can do to support their, their young adult 
um, children. I, I must admit, I bounced in and out of my parents' home after I went flatting. Did you? How so? Um, yeah. oh, I, I would go flatting for a while and then I'd go back to mum and dad's for a while. But my mother always made me pay board. If I was working, I had to pay board. You're kidding me. Um, no, and serious. I think that's not, not, not punitive amounts of money, Wallace, mm. but, you know, I ate food, I used their power. How else do you teach children that there is a cost of living? That's quite mean, um, isn't it? No. God, don't say that because I've charged my own children board at different times. Well, you shouldn't. Um, well, I do. If they're saving, then they don't have to. If they're not saving then they and spending all their money and they're earning, they can pay some of that to me to cover the cost of living. Why? You know, they're young adults. They're earning a good income. They should cover they some are, of their own they, cost of they, living. They, they're your children. Well, yes, well, they are my children. And am I not the person who's meant to teach them financial literacy? Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, Cobus, <laughs> I, I can relate to this because I moved out of uh, the home at at 17. There would be many who do, and I flew the nest. I would not even think or contemplate about I – could, I couldn't. I could never go back home. But here's the difference between the late 80s and now. The late 80s rent – I was paying $25 a week in Dunedin. Now I am stunned. I am stunned at the rents young people have to pay, Cobus. Yeah, that's pretty shocking. It is really high amounts. But if you if you actually delve into that, um, it really is affecting a lot of young people, especially young adults nowadays, they, who who are willing and open to work and and are willing to try and earn their own incomes and and they want to try and and sort of move out of the house and become independent. But it's really difficult for them at the moment. So, is there some advice, perhaps, to those that might be, or at least have the ability to move back in with their parents? Because um, there might be niggles on either side on whether that's a good thing or not. Yeah, I think that, interestingly enough, some from the studies I saw, they mentioned that for a lot of young people, they appreciate the support for those that are able to do it. And I think that it, if it's if it's managed effectively, it can actually be mutually beneficial. And I think what I mean by that is it's about how you communicate about it. It needs to be a, a constructive discussion prior to that process happening. So sitting down and having an understanding for both parties' perspective on it and also having clear expectations of what will be happening and how will it happen once the person moves back is going to be critical. And People need to try and be very practical, like yeah. will the young adult contribute to rent? Will the young adult, for instance, um, help out in other ways, maybe doing a few things at home to sort of support the family system? But those are discussions that need to be had prior to them moving back. Oh, nice to have you on, Cobus. Quite a response to this, actually, so I appreciate your time today. That's uh, Cobus Deployer, Otago University clinical psychologist. Yeah, 85, $17 a week in Wellington. Gosh. Um, kia ora, Wallace. I moved back into my parents' home with my wife so we can save for a house and escape Auckland's horrific rent. Uh, they have worked incredibly hard to be mortgage-free, and this is their way to help us get into our home. Um, enjoying Johnny's point of view there, demonstrating the importance of having a diverse voice on the panel, so it's good to hear him reflect my experience of being young. Johnny O'Donnell and Jenny Morton with me on the panel. Ah, oh, people, children should absolutely pay board. I totally agree with your panellists. Don't worry, we're coming back to this. I want to talk more about whether or not kids should pay board or not. Anyway, uh, to this, finally, on the panel. 
one of the best acoustic spaces they had ever encountered. That is what the sound engineers said from London's famed Abbey Road Studios, the place where Dark Side of the Moon and Abbey Road were recorded. Now, were they referring to Radio City Hall Manhattan? Were they referring to an opera house in Marseille? No, the Wellington Town Hall. And $2 million has been gifted by Sir Peter Jackson and Dame Fran Walsh to help with a fit-out, including state-of-the-art equipment. With us to discuss is NZSO Chief Executive Peter Biggs. Kia ora, Peter. Good to have you here. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. So this will be part of a national music centre. Two million bucks. How exciting is this news, Peter? It's very exciting and an enormously generous donation from Sir Peter and Dame Fran, and I must pay tribute to Dame Kerry Prendergast, who's led the fundraising effort for the National Music Centre. We're at 30 million plus uh, in terms of um, actual donations and pledged donations, so she's done an amazing job, and Sir Peter and Dame Fran have been wonderfully generous. The, The Wellington Town Hall, is it really that good acoustically? It is very good. Um, in, in fact, it's outstanding. And uh, I, I can't think of how many um, scores we've recorded oh. over the decades. I think it's about 50 scores for movies. Um, and each time the, the screen people rave about the acoustic in the Wellington Town Hall. And what we're building within the Town Hall will make it even better because it'll be a state-of-the-art recording equipment and rehearsal space. So um, I, 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 I can't wait for the facility to be open in 2026. Very cool indeed, Jenny. Is it a reminder that even in times of cost of living, we do need to apportion uh, a little bit of money to keep uh, places like this alive and actually functioning and uh, up to date? Well, yeah, it's, it's, no. it is, oh, it is Jenny, enormously uplifting. Yeah. Um, the, the, the screen production industry um, delivered $10 billion in economic value um, between the years 2015, I think, and 2021. So it's big business for New Zealand, and we want more of it. And if the NZSO can be part of, of bringing that business into this country, that's exciting for everyone. Stay there, Peter. Let's go around the panel, and this will come back. Jenny Morton. Look, I think it's it's a really fantastic um gesture and I think it's a great um, outcome for the music industry in New Zealand um, and these things are important and you know and and I think that people feel good about philanthropy when they are contributing to something that's meaningful to them so I think that all the people who have contributed to this uh, that this is something that's important to them and they're, they're giving to support that their, their, their cause if you like. Johnny? Uh, to your point, Wallace, this is exactly the time to be doubling down on the arts, actually. Do you think? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, in the Great Depression in America is when they built the most theatres, um, which is still review yeah. rates positively throughout the country today. Um, this is exactly the time we need to be turning our attention to developing these kind of um, facilities. It's a, it's a really, really important time, not just to bring people together and give them, give them hope and something to look forward to, um, but also we know that in addition to our social and cultural well-being that the arts contribute to, they're a really big economic driver as well, and so this is this is good for Wellington. It's good for the country. It's it's good for the film sector. It's good for the music sector. I'm, I think it's brilliant. You support that, Peter? I do support that 100. Um, percent and, and, and while this wonderful National Music Centre will be based in Wellington, it is an asset and a resource for the whole of the country. 
uh, and uh, and we'll be making a contribution both economically and artistically to uh, our New Zealand. Yeah, well, my only, my only challenge Johnny, I'd just yeah. throw in there, and I have Go to be, do justice to this, is that um, I understand that Nelson Centre for Musical Arts, NCMA, is one of the best auditoriums in the country. So I'm just a little bit challenged by the premise uh, of it, because that's my understanding. <laughs> I don't know if you've got any views on that. Are you talking about the School of Music, uh, Johnny? Oh, hey, I learned violin there. There you go. I some love of, it. Some of our best it's, talents emerge from the School that's, of Music. <laughs> not me, <laughs> but they do have a great string quartet festival there, uh, which I absolutely love. But I'm really interested, Peter, about this facility, the Wellington Town Hall. So if you've got um, engineers from arguably the best studio in the world coming to Aotearoa and saying, hey, this is the bomb. This is a tile for us. We've got to really support and protect it and make sure it lives for future generations, huh? Oh, totally. Um, and and this, this this thing is being built for the future. And just picking Very up cool. on, on Johnny's comment, I mean, we have great acoustic spaces in this country. The Dunedin Town Hall is wonderful down right. there at yes. Otapoti. Um, the, the Auckland Town Hall in Tamaki Makoto yeah. is fantastic. Um, Nelson, obviously. So um, it's no reflection on the other great acoustic spaces, but we have this chance um, and it's wonderful to have such support behind it um, to build something visionary for all of this country. Oh, good very, on you, Peter. Very diplomatic of you, Peter. Well, hand- <laughs> well handled. <laughs> Spreading the love. Lovely. That's the NZO, NZSO Chief Executive, uh, Peter Biggs. Gosh, you've got my memory running there, Johnny. A, 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 a wonderful Saturday morning, picking up the violin, scratching through a lesson, going across the road, having a tip-top or a uh, rocky road, and you're in the Nelson sunshine. What a place to live, huh? It certainly is, and we really are blessed with some amazing arts institutions. School of Music is one of them, Theatre Royal is another. We're very, very lucky. Indeed, the Theatre Royal as well, indeed. And let's not forget the wonderful Ōtutahi Christchurch. You both are very lucky living in some wonderful places. And I think that's the panel. Very good, Jenny. Johnny, kia ora. Thank you for both uh, being with me. Uh, a lot of response this afternoon. We'll come back to some of those issues. I am Wallace Chapman back when the horns blow, 3.45, you know the time. Meanwhile, it is Checkpoint Now with Lisa Owen, and I'll see you tomorrow.